Republic. I'm here with my colleagues, Leighton Woodhouse, Alice Gutentag, and our very special guest, Matthew Crawford, author of Shopcraft as Soulcraft. This is uh, first and most famous book, and he has a substack called Arcadelia. And Matthew, you and I met at the University of Austin at Dallas. <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, and you and your uh, fiance, I guess it's fair to say, is uh, were running a course called "The Battle of the Sexes," and we had a couple of great conversations. I think about a bunch of different things, but I thought you were one of the highlights for me of the visit. And you live down the road from us in San Jose, and you knew Alex's work on COVID. Yeah. So we wanted to have you over and and do a proper long podcast. Yeah. So, um, welcome. Yeah. Thanks for. We're doing this. I'm happy to be here. Do you want to let's before we get into it a little bit? Um, I think you know if people have heard of you, I think they know of your first book because it was uh, a pretty big book. It was serialized. Part of it was in the New York Times Magazine. Can you talk to us about you know however you want to introduce yourself? Tell us you can start from there or you can start uh, further back and just give us a sense of who you are and and what your and what you've been what you've been working on, what your intellectual life has consisted of, or your non-intellectual life, for that matter, maybe, and then talk us through up to the present, and then we can get into a bunch of topics. Yeah, so I actually grew up right here in Berkeley, um, and moved away in the '90s for grad school, and uh, so I went to the University of Chicago, did a doctorate in uh, the history of political thought. So I was into ancient Greek stuff mostly. <clears throat> Couldn't get an academic job because uh, there's a glut of PhDs, as you all know. So I took a job at a think tank. I hated it. I lasted about five months. I was called the George C. Marshall Institute. <coughs> um, so I quit that and opened a motorcycle repair shop and was happily doing that. I had a few things I wanted to, to write as well, so I took a little time to um, do some writing, and one of the things I wrote was this essay shop class as Soulcraft, and it was a case for the manual trades. So I had worked as an electrician, I've worked as a mechanic, um, and I'd always felt um, happier doing that stuff than various desk jobs, you know, sitting in a cubicle. And in particular, this was what made it kind of interesting. I've felt more intellectually challenged doing that kind of work than in some of the, you know, so-called knowledge work jobs I'd had. So that seemed worth trying to understand. Like, it seemed like our official story we tell about work wasn't matching my experience. And in delving into that, I got into some history, you know, the history of the assembly line and kind of the degradation of work through the separation of thinking from doing. It was a fascinating history. Um, so that became my first book. And yeah, that sort of launched huge me. Bestseller. Uh, I wouldn't say huge uh, <laughs> bestseller. Yeah. I remember it. And you know, it's funny. I got to ask one funny thing about your Wikipedia page, which of course my Wikipedia page is told. Oh shit. I haven't even looked at no, it no, because I'm I afraid to. It's to. the craziest thing I saw because I just looked at it briefly and it says, I'm going to read it exactly, but it basically just says um, Matthew Crawford claims to be a motorcycle mechanic. And it says, yeah, no, here it is. 
He is contributing editor at New Atlantis and professes to be a motorcycle mechanic. Yeah. As though, like, is this – Like, yeah, like, I mean, really, that he was just faking it or something? Like, why the hell is Wikipedia well, – this, this what is, is why that about? Is there some controversy at, or – This is why I haven't looked at Wikipedia. <laughs> um, well, I did it full-time for a number of years, and then the writing kind of took over. And then the business kind of shifted from – Fixing motorcycles to fabricating parts for custom bikes, which I did um, in collaboration with a custom bike builder. In fact, if you watch the show, um, I'm blanking. What's the zombie show? The Walking Dead and the motorcycle figures prominently in that. Well, that bike... uh, was built by my uh, my Wait, friend John Ryan. Is it the bike that the long-haired guy rides? Yeah, right what's his name? The quiet, tough guy. Yeah, the sexy, tough yeah. guy. Wow. Yeah, it so I made a couple of parts on that bike. That's my claim to fame on that front. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I wanna um, I, I wanna get to your more recent stuff too, but you did do a book that is kind of a a celebration of driving, <coughs> which I think came out right. Uh, right at the beginning of COVID, but tell us about that book too. Yeah, it was um, it was called "Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road." So that um, you know, driving was sort of that. That's the it's a, it's just really kind of a pretext for doing political philosophy, just as the other book, you know, skilled manual work was the pretext for thinking more broadly. Um, so, yeah, driving I find to be a really interesting kind of social practice where you're, you're very enclosed in your private property, in your car, and yet you have to share the road with all these other people. And just think about what goes on at a typical urban intersection. Um, you know, say it's a four-way stop. Well, there's, you know, there's ambiguous cases of right-of-way. One person might wave the other through or make eye contact, there's a kind of body language of driving. Um, and I bring that up, that example up in particular because there was a case where a Google self-driving car came to a four-way stop and it had been programmed to come to a complete stop and wait for others to do the same before going through. But of course that's not what people <laughs> do. So it froze, it melted down, had to be rebooted. But the interesting thing here is is what the Google guy said he had learned from this episode, which is that human beings need to be less idiotic. (laughs) (laughs) So I think this is emblematic of a kind of um, low regard for human capacities that animates a lot of tech and also a lot of government is sort of viewing us as incompetent and stupid mm-hmm. and but but you know completely invisible to this google dork was the social intelligence on display at that intersection you know we're not computers but in this mindset we show up as sort of inferior versions of computers social intelligence that's operating at a four-way stop yeah. that the Google engineer is too idiotic to appreciate. Actually, the self-driving car would drive, that's like a children's conception of how to drive. 
you know right you all, i mean it is the rules it's the rules that would be in the dmv test that you all stop and you let the mm-hmm. but there's a there's yeah there's the communication happening between the drivers kind of visual communication yeah that is complex and um the, the self-driving car is is simple yeah and i take this as kind of one instance of this wider pattern in which we're kind of constantly nudged into ever greater passivity and dependence by trying to you know automate things and basically take the human element out of every human activity mm-hmm. and how would you so i want to get into some of that but how would you then describe the last three years of your work and again it's arcadelia it's a really interesting substack you run and how would you describe your work since then because i want to then talk a little bit about what through lines you see in what you've been doing also can you define arcadelia yeah, so it might have been an unfortunate choice because I have to explain the word. <laughs> um, so I coined it by analogy with psychedelia, which would mean mind-revealing. Mm-hmm. So archadelia uh, would mean rule-revealing. Hmm. So um, I guess it's animated by the sense that um, sovereignty has become very difficult to locate and uh, kind of amorphous. Mm. Uh, clearly, our sort of official self-understanding, our constitutional regime, I think, doesn't obtain. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't hold. COVID really kind of brought to the foreground, I think, for a lot of people, this sense that we're not governed according to, um, you know, the official uh, story about self-government we acquiesce to an extraordinary extension of expert jurisdiction over every domain of life. Mm -hmm. And that theme really runs through uh, my three books um, as a kind of erosion of the space for intelligent human action, individual judgment, um, basically self-command, self-government as a disposition and as um, a kind of readiness to take things in hand for oneself and sort of deter- determine your own life. Mm. Well, it's such a thing. <laughs> I expressed to you, I just came from this interview with Frontline doing a documentary on the Twitter files and censorship. And this was literally where we were, what we were arguing about, which was my, the, the person interviewing me kept saying, well, what are you going to do about disinformation? And who's going to regulate the speech? And how do we, it's like, what? Like, what? It, presu- like, it presumes a problem yeah. like, just by asking the question. It's an it's a brilliant, I mean, we've talked about before the way disinformation just is such a crazy word, the way it hijacks your whole brain into thinking that it's a problem as opposed to like, yeah, there's so people that disagree with you out there. Is that a problem? And it's but, like, this, but it's this idea that somebody needs to come and regulate this, all mm-hmm. of this out of control speech. It's like being like, well, what are we going to do about the problem of internal demons in Americans? Right. Yeah. Like, I wasn't aware there were internal demons in America. You're like, what are we going to do about the problem? Eventually, right. we have to do something about this problem, about yeah. these demons in every American. But, or, but, but in this case, it's like you're describing, you're, you're, you're describing, human, you're describing humans and human utterances and, and discourse. And it's like being like, what are we going to do about anger? I mean, that's one of the... That's one of the things people talk about, right? Like, how well is anger online and whatever? Okay, so now anger is bad and we can't have anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a tendency to, um, uh, I call it do somethingism. And, you know, the old adage that if, if, you know, if you have a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. 
And so <clears throat> as the sort of capacity for technocratic, you know, control over society increases, you know, these kind of organs of social control become hungry for occasions to flex their muscles and do what they do, and they just necessarily expand. And, and usually it's by the device of invoking some kind of emergency, Right, so COVID was a mega emergency. <coughs> Climate clearly is a perfect emergency because, emergency. well, it's permanent and it re would require a wholesale sort of transformation of society to address, which is perfect because I think there's an attraction precisely in the radicalness of, of what's said to be required because this is all a kind of social engineering impulse. Well, so, okay, well, this is great because, of course, now I want to put you in a box all the more because you're against being put into boxes, it sounds like. So um, so there's sort of a, you're interested in, it seems like you're interested in self-reliance and craft. Sure. And individuality, kind of agency. I mean, you seem a little, like, I hate to use the word, but well, there's some libertarian impulse in you, a real strong sense of, 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 of autonomy. I would say just ornery. Ornery. <laughs> Not autonomy, but ornery. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's God. How would you describe it if somebody, if you're, you know, if you're like cocktail party people, like how would you describe your work? What would you say is like, what are, what are the big themes and concerns you have? I guess I'm trying to excavate these various subterranean ways in which um, there's a kind of degradation of, of the human landscape, um, whether it's by kind of preempting the space for, you know, exercising our intelligence. And so for, you know, the story I just told about the driverless car at the intersection is, is one instance of that. Um, now, are you there's, I mean, I think the risk of that, it sounds like there could be some nostalgia there too. I mean, is there some period where there was, where humans were more authentic and more able to realize themselves or is it more, we were talking about Foucault before we started recording, there's a, you know, it's sort of a similar complaint made of Foucault where there was ever a period where we weren't shaped by language and structures of power? Well, right, of course, we're social beings, we're language <coughs> using beings. But if we're talking about technology, I think you, you have to, um, right, so the point is not to, to regress to some natural state I mean, we, we are tool users. Hannah Arendt called us um, homo faber. We, we make things. And then we kind of become products of our own tools, in a sense. Um, I mean, you call that culture or civilization. But I think you can maintain some critical kind of criteria for assessing technology, whether it kind of um, enhances our capacity for action or kind of transfers um, the capacity for action to, you know, various institutionalized, um, usually, uh, you know, moneyed interests that kind of want to um, kind of claim various realms of everyday activity and gather them into the sort of profit um, imperative. When you brought up the driving thing, I thought you were going somewhere else with it, which is, I can't remember if Norbert Elias wrote this or if I heard this from a professor who was explaining Norbert Elias, but um, I remember the analogy made of like, you know, Norbert Elias wrote about the civilizing process and the way in which with state formation, people start to um, 
over many many uh, generations, over millennia, people start to constrain their own, uh, their restrain their own behavior in accordance with the needs of the state. And the analogy was like a car driving in traffic, where everybody's isolated from one another, but everybody is very careful to anticipate the actions of each other, mm -hmm. because if you make a false, you know, if you make a mistake, then it's to the de detriment of yourself as well as everybody else. So it's sort of like you start to subject the rules of the road onto your own behavior. Um, and then everybody's doing that. So even though they're isolated from one another, they all become this sort of conductorless orchestra because one fuck up is there's a collective um, stake in, in having everybody behave properly. And that was the analogy for you know how we just kind of take these structures of power around us and we incorporate it into ourselves. And it's not just like, you know, the naive way of looking at it is that you're just inculcating like obedience, but it's th that's sort of doesn't give enough dignity to people mm -hmm. in modern societies. It's not just obedience. It's also it's in your self-interest and it's how you, you know, sort of just learn to navigate a modern society. Yeah, I have a chapter on road rage <clears throat> where I talk about the sort of communicative problem of having to you know, coordinate with other people on the road while having very little means of communicating. Usually you can't see their eyes mm -hmm. or, or even what direction, you know, their attention is directed. You know, what do you have? Your horn, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's a, it, you can get into these spirals of mutual sort of misunderstanding. I think that's what road rage mm -hmm. tends to be. Um, but then on the, on the other hand, I've had m moments, for whatever reason, they usually happen in London. I think London has some of the most impressive driving where, you know, rule following doesn't even begin to capture what's going on. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of improvisational, um, almost like, you know, kind of a ballet of, you know, the cabbies you know, jostling for advantage, but also kind of professional courtesy. There's um, there's a lot of discretion being exercised. And on a good day, you know, I think it makes you proud to belong to the human race. It's impressive. They, dr they drive better in, in London than I they think do. so. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're much more, um, much less rule-bound, I would say. When, when I moved to L.A., you know, people are pretty aggressive driving in L.A., especially on the freeway. And I lived there for many years. When I first moved there, I was terrified by the how aggressive people were. And one thing you have that happens in L.A. is if you're trying to get into the, the lane next to you, you know, you put on your blinkers. And in the Bay Area and, I don't know, maybe the rest of the country, um, what happens if you see somebody um, with their blinker on, the polite thing to do is to slow down to let them in in front of you. Nobody does that in L.A. And at first I thought it was just because everybody was super aggro until I realized the rules are just different in L.A. And then mm -hmm. the rules in L.A. are if somebody is, has their blinker on, at least this is my experience, you speed up to let them in <coughs> behind you. Mm -hmm. And um, and so like so then once I figured that out, it made sense and it was totally functional. And actually now and in, in I continue to be aggravated in the Bay Area <laughs> by the fact that that's not the rule anymore because it was it was better. But, you know, it's just a different set of rules. It wasn't just what first appeared to just be aggressive driving was just yeah. a different set of rules which is actually probably more functional for a even more automotive um, city than, than here. Yeah, I think what we're talking about is norms, sort of tacit norms that aren't specified anywhere, but that um, 
you know, if they're robust and if everyone's on the same page, then it, things become massively more efficient than if you don't have robust norms. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling like I want to get into COVID, but I want to do one more thing before we get there, which is the battle of the sexes. Mm -hmm. Tell us why you decided to do that course for University of Austin and how it went. Because I do think that this, I think it really does fit into your, this pattern of work that you're doing. And um, I just thought it would be fun, I guess. So I guess the animating <coughs> thought was that relations between men and women these days are um, shot through with a kind of dreary political moralism. Um, <coughs> there's, not, there's not a lot of sense of play. I think we have a basically conflictual view of, of sex. Um, so we wanted to kind of uh, articulate a more, I don't know, humane and playful account of of um of men and women is it is are you talking about safetyism among like you know undergrads in the dorm room that kind of stuff some of that i mean there's a there's a whole campus sex bureaucracy the point of which is to kind of regulate the most intimate aspects of life it's super romantic yeah right um yeah the whole consent um sort of culture that really kind of strips down the ambiguities of a bad sexual experience into these kind of legalistic terms. And I think there's, um, you know, male sexuality in particular tends to get subsumed under these terms like sexual assault and sexual harassment that are borrowed from the criminal code, right? And they're But they're made to stand for kind of male sexuality altogether. And that's, you know, that's one way that the sex bureaucracy on campus sort of expands its mandate. Which com this comes out of um, radical feminism, right? I mean, it was, uh, I can't remember if it was Andrea Dworkin or Susan Brownmiller, one of them who was like, all, all intercourse is rape. Yeah. Dworkin. Is that Dworkin? Thank I you. think so. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so male, you know, so assertive male sexuality and desire is sort of pathologized and problematized by these bureaucracies. Is that saying yeah I mean that's that's I think obviously the case and one upshot of that is it creates a real hurdle to overcome for intimacy if you have this sort of paranoid conflictual view I think drinking to oblivion is one way mm. that undergrads try to overcome that hurdle um, which is so paradoxical because of course that's how rapes happen exactly right um, not the first time uh, we've seen an unintended consequence causing the problem that yeah. it aimed to solve. Um, I think it's also, it just gives that bureaucracy so much power because the message is that you can't handle your relationships on your own. You need someone to be there, protect you, and mm -hmm. um, make sure nothing bad happens to you. Yeah. It kind of <coughs> reminds me of the discussion about the four-way intersection with the self-driving car insofar as it's like like sex when you're young um, and you're courting each other and before it becomes routine um, you're like <laughs> and boring but you're like there there is like a no, you're not speaking from personal experience uh, no. obviously, right of course <laughs> not my sex life is amazing but but, uh, but like you know it's this courtship where there's a there's a lot of negotiation and there's all these uns unspoken 
rules, but they mm. are rules and they're understood by both parties and you kind of give your hints and there's flirtation and there's all that stuff back and forth. And there's a pow- there's kind of like there there's um I mean, I'm not trying to be naive about it, but there's like consent is worked out in in this sort of complicated no. unspoken inter- interplay that neither party would even be able to explain, but you just know on a human level. Um, and then that's replaced with this just absolutely retarded um, you know, affirmative consent model written by fucking lawyers where you're like, you're like, it's like you, there's a lawyer in your room who's like, no. have you, you're, take off the bra. Have you asked for consent? Is, was consent meet the enthusiasm metric? Super hot, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's like the self-driving cars. They're just, they're, there's, yeah. they're bound by written rules that yeah. they're supposed to take and take literally and then they miss the whole picture. It's like an unwillingness to kind of let human, the human drama play itself out mm-hmm. kind of yeah. uh, this, f- this kind of fixation on controlling everything and the rules and i mean guys just got back to this thing i was you know it's like well but how there would be all this free s- there would all be the speech there would be all this unregulated speech there would be no rules <laughs> you know it's it seems like there's some i mean there's this is one of the trends in modernity right where you just see more and more quantification more rules just the accumulation over time um yeah, it's this fundamental distrust of what we'll do if we're left to our own devices in every realm. But it's paradoxical because I, I associate that same group of people with having a romantic idea of nature, of Rousseau, of how of of some sort of um, you know that things were better when we didn't have all that, and yet the same people are now trying to regulate everything. Is that a contradiction? In, in, are you seeing? Do you see? You know what I'm talking about? Like on the certainly on the environmental side, there's this romantic idea of na- we got to get back to nature we have to harmonize ourselves with nature and then there's also this we have to regulate everything we have to count every carbon molecule we have to we have to know what the carbon intensity of your jet pl- of your travel was interesting do you see that those contradictions and other well i'm just i'm just trying to think about what you just said and you mentioned rousseau um right so i i guess i associate him with on the one hand this this view of human beings as um, sort of innately good, and um, so you so then the what follows from that is you just need to kind of relax the um, you know get out from under authority and and yeah let it all out. I mean the best of Rousseau is let the kids play and just stop trying to stop mm-hmm. helicopter parenting your kids right. That's the best of Rousseau. They're going to be fine if you just leave them alone. But but of course also with environmentalism and this is this is your thing. Um, there's a kind of anti-humanism. There's a a kind of a view of of human beings as innately kind of like a a contamination of the planet. Yes. Yeah. Which is not. Yeah, I don't know. How would how do you get from that romantic kind of let the inner child you know out to this anti-human i mean part of it's just the part of it's just the the one standard for me a different standard for you Mm -hmm. right like um my sex life is going to be totally playful and amazing and without any rules but we're going to need to regulate all the undergrads you know um i love like you know i've got my ranch and um my cows and my you know my teslas and my jet my private jet travel but we're gonna have to measure your carbon output and tie it to a central 
a bank digital currency and a social credit system, but that's for you. I mean, I'm always we're always struck by the censors who we the people that are the pro censorship advocates are constantly. They're just talking about other people's speech, like all that. They're never, they're never like why they never like say things like, well, I try to imagine the kind of uh, regulation of my speech that I would want. They're not; these are not super re- self-reflective. But it seems like I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I do think it's consistent with Rousseau because the idea is that we have caused all the problems. Like we human beings, we had Eden, we fell, we caused all the problems. Mm-hmm. So now they need to fix it, mm-hmm. right? It's not like any of these things, like an uncomfortable romantic or sexual experience that's not just part of life you know that's something that was created so and that happened outside of state of nature like in state of nature that would never happen nothing bad would happen we've just right, right? there wasn't rape in the in the yeah. state of nature <laughs> there was only um it's only these uh, systems of domination afterwards and so it's actually the exact same narrative as the fall yeah. Maybe the consistent thing here is this um, kind of overblown sense of responsibility, right? Because uh, we're responsible for the planet is the the environmental thing. So it's this sense of sinfulness. Um, narcissism. And yes, we've been very interested right. in, in the psychopathology of this. And narcissism, we've sort of reduced it to three things, uh, grandiosity, entitlement, and black and white thinking. And so with that, you kind of, you can explain a lot. You can explain the, the sex regulations, the climate regulations. Um, the entitlement is that I should be involved in your sex life. You know, <laughs> the entitlement is I should have control over your speech. I should have control over how you live your life in terms of carbon. The, um, the grandiosity is that it's of, it's of just absolutely great importance that I have this control over your sex life because otherwise there could be rape or disinformation or apocalypse. And then the black and white thinking is really internalized where the the person that's doing the regulating, the regulator, um, they're just like, I'm on the side of the angels, you know, and I'm out there hunting devils, but there's no chance that the devil's in me. There's this great line from Solzhenitsyn that you just reminded me of. speaking to this you know you're talking about this double standard and kind of special pleading on behalf of you know of us the good people he said that um the line dividing good from evil doesn't run between social classes or between one party and another it runs right through the middle of every human heart and i think it's that sense of um you know that we're all you know we're all fallible and fallen and subject to error. I think that sense needs to be recovered if our governing elites are to, um, you know, be less arrogant. I think the question you were. It is. I think the question. You have a, you know, you see the log in your, in your, in your eye, in the other person's eye and you ignore this, or you see the speck in the other person's eye and you ignore the log in your eye. Um, but it seems the question that you were getting at with the Rousseau thing or the contradiction is just like the same people who sort of valorize this noble savage idea of the state of nature where um, people are free and spontaneous and good to each other in their freedom and spontaneity and there are no rules are the same people who are 
in favor of erecting this like state superstructure, this like administrative state that divides everybody up into categories and accords mm-hmm. rules and then disciplines those who fall out of the rule that that framework. Like their their vision of a modern society, and you know, I I don't mean to paint this in too broad of a strokes because like I I would be at I, I would I I would be at pains to be able to pinpoint it to an individual who says these two things. It's sort of like a, a theme on the left, but you know the same general genre of people who whose utopia their utopia is completely the opposite of the political project that they seem to be in favor of constructing. You oh, know? Absolutely. Yeah. Which is the same thing as we've we talked about at this length about left libertarianism in San Francisco, you know, the idea that homeless that it's somehow dignifying and ennobling for homeless people, for homeless drug addicts to live on in on tents on the streets and do and have their you know, do drugs in public, but then at the same time um, you know, if you wear, if you, you have to have vaccine passports to walk into a bar and like you have to have, you know, mm-hmm. your mask will need to be, be fiercely regulated. And it's like this super authoritarian um, sort of um, uh, project on the one hand and then this totally libertarian, like crazy libertarian. It's like anarchy plus tyranny. Yeah. But, the, but it's also, but, and this is the thing we got to the bottom of on that, is that, is that the, the liberty is for the victims. And right. so there's an underlying victim ideology. The other one I would do would be, well, first to observe that there was a shift in feminism, which was like, women are strong, you know? And it was, I mean, it was in Rosie the Riveter. It was in World War II. Look at women, you know, hear me roar. 1970s feminism, we don't need men. You know, we can lift heavy objects and blah, blah, blah. And now it's like, oh, you know, you, you could be raped. You know, if you don't have consent, you know, you, you're you're vulnerable, uh, you're fragile. And then it's like, well, unless like a biological male wants to come into your bathroom, in which case, hey, you're tough enough girl to be able to deal with it. And the reason is, is of course, because the trans female is or the trans woman is perceived to be uh, more vulnerable because they're a victim. And therefore, sort of definitionally, there's no way that a trans woman could ever rape a a woman in the bathroom, even though you just said five minutes ago that she's vulnerable at being raped in her dorm room by a man, right? Well, and the message is you don't need men, but you do need the therapeutic state. Um, mm-hmm. And some people need it more, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Th- who needs it more, the victims? No. The, the, the trans person going into the bathroom. I mean, the funny thing is, in the case of the COVID, the people that need the therapeutic state the most were the normies. And the people who need the therapeutic state the least are the actual addicts and people with schizophrenia. So the therapeutic state is actually the tyrannical therapeutic state is for the oppressors and the normies, whereas the libertarian um, Rousseauian, you know, uh, state of nature is for the victims. I guess there's a right as far as like treating homeless people with this idea that their autonomy is the most important thing rather than mm-hmm. just like basic safety it's it's like a horror of being paternalistic right and um but on the other hand as you mentioned you know, just kind of normal citizens going about their day well there's no there's no squeamishness about paternalism on that front because the normies because the ordinary normie citizens are the are actually oppressors Right. And the victims, everything should for them should be given and nothing required. And so the state is no longer under this new, you know, successor ideology. The state is not, we are not equal under the law. 
like the you know the state is not neutral towards citizens it's actually um, uh, in service uh, it needs to be in service of the people that we call victims and it needs to be antagonistic towards the people that we declare to be oppressors yeah i've i've been taken with some recent political theory that emphasizes the the role of the victimological imagination in legitimizing the modern state. Um, and you can take this all the way back to Thomas Hobbes. So the problem that he set out to solve was that of civil war, um, which comes down to the fact that we're proud um, and we feel easily slighted when people don't value us the way we value ourselves. And this kind of aristocratic brittleness leads to faction and civil strife. And for him, the solution to that is to get people to think of themselves as vulnerable um, so that they'll be willing to sort of hand over, you know, give up the right to fight with one another and invest authority in Leviathan. So this requires a consciousness-raising program where we should start thinking of ourselves as vulnerable. And this project is never finished because for Leviathan to thrive, we have to keep renewing this through, I think, a kind of emergency politics. Um, I mean, isn't this also like the blueprint for every authoritarian society we've seen in the last 200 years, right? Like it's like everything from like, Middle Eastern dictatorships to Nazi Germany, right? There's always this I ideology of like, we are we're the victims of the of the mm -hmm. we're we're, vic we're the victims. We're vulnerable. Our 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 uh, enemies are aligned against us, and so we need to have the the strong authoritarian state to both express our our collective dignity and to protect us. Yeah, that I hadn't thought of that parallel. I think you're right. There's a kind of grievance mentality that's yeah. cultivated. What I was referring to is, maybe it's related, but I, I think it's distinct. It's this, I mean, um, you just mentioned the therapeutic state. I think, um, you know, therapy kind of, the idea of it is care. And I think the modern subject that currently is conceived as this fragile being that's afloat in this field of harms that you need protection from. That's certainly the way we raise kids, and that's the mentality in schools. Alex, you've, you've taught in school. Um, I don't know how much of that you saw. I think it's especially in sort of progressive, uh, bougie schools. There's this kind of hovering around the playground by adults to make sure there isn't any incipient trauma about to happen. And so we're sort of constructing these fragile selves who then become ideal, um, you know, subjects of the therapeutic state. So do you think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way? The more that the state treats us as, and treats children as dependent, the more people actually do become dependent? Totally, yeah. Because it's, you know, resilience is built by coming up against hard reality, you know, that kicks you in the shin and that's how you grow, and so. Right. I Rowan, by the way, there's, uh, there's these little videos that are going, that, that are now, I'm, they're clearly targeting me as a Gen Xer on like Instagram or wherever I watch these little videos of like Gen Xers, talking about how it was when we were Gen Xers. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, when you look back, it is like amazing where it's like, you're like, you go to school and you're seven, 
and your mom, this is my, this is, I'm telling my life story here. And, and your mom's like, okay, honey, here's the key. I'm going to wrap it around your neck with a piece of yarn. You let yourself back in. You're actually terrified. I mean, you're just like, I can't believe I'm going to come home alone to the house. But your mom's like, your mom says to you, no, it's fine. Mm -hmm. That's what your mom says. This is in the eighties or the, or the set late seventies. She's like, no, no, you're, you're fine. Your fears are just in your head. And now it's like, oh my God, it's just like, there's no way. Of course, I would pick you up from school. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, the, 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 I mean, the parenting culture already when I was raising my kids was already just like, oh, you let your child walk home from school? Are you some kind of maniac? You know, it's like incredible the shift that's occurred. But yeah, and I think we grew up a little bit, I think we grew up much more resilient because our parents were like, we think you're going to be fine. Yeah, so there's a kind of supervisory mentality that is extended down into every, you know, previously unsupervised aspect of life. I mean, kids used to run wild, it's really true. And I was just reading Christopher Lash recently, actually for the um, University of Austin seminar. And he has some great social history um, from the 19th century of... Um, actually wrote a few of these things down <coughs> so you know so kids are creating their own games and rituals they challenge each other to spontaneous feats of daring and agility acting out stories of <laughs> heroic adventure and collaborating in the enforcement of an informal code of honor that stresses courage loyalty stoic endurance of pain um, but by the end of the 19th century, formal pedagogy started to replace spontaneous play and sort of self-culture, which is part of this larger campaign to subject formerly unsupervised activities to systematic study and control. And, um, you know, you might say that this is a, a colonization of the life world, to borrow a, f a fancy phrase from Habermas. Um, is this idea of kind of pedagogical or therapeutic mediation kind of standing between you and all kinds of activities. And um, if you think of the life world as just the realm of everything that's taken for granted that you don't have to think about and within this horizon you can just live unmolested, well this imperative to rationalize everything and subject it to study and control is really a determination to leave nothing taken for granted. And what that m comes down to in practice is the steady encroachment of organized expertise, um, which of course is connected to money and power. You know, or to, to be organized, it means it's institutionalized. So I think one way this manifests is that we feel like we're subject to routines that sort of drain the joy out of work and play and, and wrap everything in this smothering self-consciousness. And it's interesting, right now, you have this resurgence of vitalism, like in the online right, right. right? Figure, figures like Bronze Age pervert. And it's cast as this extremely toxic, you know, masculine thing. Right. I think you can regard it as a response to this kind of over administration of life. Well, I just saw the Joe Rogan tweet on this, which was right. like I think it was a response to an MSNBC article, which is actually a year old, but they okay. res they resurfaced it. Yeah, so that's why it came <laughs> up again. But it was yeah. basically like they're calling um, fitness 
fascist far right yeah, <laughs> yeah. fascist um i you know i think the thing about the therapeutic state is like to, to return to the homelessness thing in san francisco while like you point to uh, this bifurcation between the way that and i did too between the way that norm normies are treated and the way that homeless addicts are treated which is inconsistent to us evaluating it from a moral point of view or even just from a rules-based point of view. When you look at it from the point of view of the therapeutic state, though, it's perfectly consistent insofar as it's just in both cases, it's a way for the therapeutic state to be able to insinuate its power into these populations because all they need from the homeless drug addicted population is just to continue to exist as they as mm -hmm. they do. They're like the, the, the equivalent of being in critical care or even like hospice really because that's the kind of treatment that they're giving them they're just passive victims and all they need to do is continue to persist and the therapeutic state has this problem to manage they have mm -hmm. purpose given to the lives of the of the volunteers who go out and cater like christian pastors to this to this lost flock they it, they get to renew their budgets um uh continue to do foundation fundraising etc Whereas with normal people who, of course, you know, have the power to be able to push, resist and push back, they need a much more draconian, mm. authoritarian, top down mm. um, uh, apparatus for doing this. But it's to the same end, which is to just control behavior and to and to turn people into problems to be solved by more rules by, you know, administrators of the therapeutic state. <laughs> We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.